Yeah. So a big, big welcome to, um, I guess, one of the first people that helped me on my health journey, Dr. Pete from Arizona, aren't you? All the way from the US um, to speak to us this morning. So grateful for your time and for the many conversations that we've had prior to this. Um, It's been really exciting watching you uh, get more and more involved in the health space, for the want of a better word. So over to you to tell us a little bit about you, your background, how you got to be where you are, and let's have a listen to what you've got to say. Well, I, I think I got into this space the same as, as uh, in fact, I don't think I've met one person yet who doesn't have a story. And mine started five years ago. Uh, I was uh, still teaching full-time uh, chemistry uh, teacher. And uh, and I considered myself pretty active. I actually was in CrossFit at the time. But like with a lot of people, uh, I had been really focused for a while, raising a daughter and um, trying to make ends meet and things like that. So uh, basically, I went in for a physical exam and I came out of that uh, diagnosed with prediabetes. And three years before that, I had been diagnosed with gout. Uh, and the way all these things come together, uh, at, the, at the time of the gout diagnosis, I had no concept that that was also a condition driven by uh, metabolism gone awry. Um, I thought I was treated when I went in, they talked to me about it. Like it was a headache, uh, a, a severe headache, um, a very painful one, but just that sort of this inconvenient thing. And so then when I came up being pre-diabetic three years later, that's really when I got the wake up call that, you know, my health wasn't what I thought it was and that I needed to do something about it. And I'm a PhD biochemist, so I'm a scientist. And I, I, didn't, I didn't like what the doctors were telling me, which was that, you know, uh, get more exercise. And I was CrossFitting at the time. All right. So you were pretty, you were pretty yeah, exercised and still, out. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm a CrossFit L2 trainer at this point, And I, I've still, I do, I'm active every single day of the week, pretty much uh, at, at a pretty intense level. Uh, and then the other thing was, is I felt at the time, like I was eating reasonably healthy. Although looking back on that, knowing what I know now there, I had, there was a lot of sugar in my diet, uh, coming in in a lot of different places. Plus I was drinking beer and, uh, you know, three of them a day at least. And I thought, like a lot of people think, that you can just exercise everything off, you know, the effects of a lifestyle like that. And, uh, but I didn't like what the doctors were telling me because they were, they were saying, well, you know, we can manage this condition. Uh, if you, if you eat better and get more exercise. And again, that just made me mad because of the CrossFit. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? You know, Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't imagine how I could have been doing any more pushups than I was already doing. Uh, and, and I could uh, work harder at eating better, which I tried to do at the time. But then I got into the literature and I saw doing the things that they were asking me to do, which I did, wasn't making any difference. And in fact, my my fasting glucose was just start getting higher every day and so on. I had stopped drinking altogether. Um, so I could see that my condition was getting worse doing what they were saying. And uh, in the research that I was doing online, I eventually got to Verta Health and came uh, on the papers. Yeah. And I saw that this wasn't about management, that in fact, you could reverse this condition. So and I realize now, five years into this, that there are people back then, I thought that I was alone in the world, but but basically there were a lot of people that had been eating low carb already for a long time. You had Westman and there's, you know, and then uh, Finney and Volek and all these guys who were writing about it. 
Um, and so I started to play catch up. But basically, I took the Verta papers, put them down on my dining room table, and then constructed my lifestyle right from that. And Gosh. Yeah. 52 days later, my prediabetes was reversed and the gout was in remission. But I came out of that feeling a couple of ways. Mm. One, one way, one thing I felt pretty strongly about was that uh, I, I was angry at the medical establishment that they were just telling me there was no information available that there might be this other way of doing things that so that was one part of it and then the other part of me was i had a genuine interest in trying to help people understand that there are other things that you can do besides taking the medications and uh and following you know the medical advice that there mm -hmm. that you can actually like reverse these conditions and then the third thing was, is that uh, I learned that that the science is there, you know, and for me, that journey started reading you know, Teichholz and um, and Gary Taubes. I think everyone has probably read that stuff. But but then I made the decision to really uh, launch uh, a major effort into the literature. And that's where I've been for five years. And I've learned that, hang on, let me turn this thing off. I've learned that uh, in the case of diabetes, oftentimes you're going to hear people, you know, I've, I've seen this at even very recent meetings. They're going to say the very first example of, uh, of using a ketogenic diet to reverse these conditions was epilepsy. But the truth of the matter is, is that ketogenic diets go back in our history a lot further than that. The mm. French were using them in the mid 1700s to uh, to help people with their obesity. Um, and, you know, there's uh, stuff that came out in the 1800s. Uh, I'm very active and I've specialized in helping people put gout in remission. And mm. I can tell you that there's papers that were published in 1850 wow. uh, that, that uh, established the fact that you can't use a pure uh, purogenic diets, you know, uh, not eating meat in order to make gout go away. That stuff has been known since 1850. And yet there's this gap. And that gap really, really frustrates me um, because actually there's a wealth of really well done literature that came out in the 60s, the 70s and the 80s by these guys who are hardcore biochemists. And that's what my training is in mm -hmm. uh, that describe the gout condition. And we actually know a lot more about that condition than the medical establishment knows at this point, because for some reason they've let all that stuff go. So what is my point? My point is, is that for me, this journey is really boiled down into two things. Uh, one, a relentless search of the literature to try and understand, to, to try and see what's been published out there, what I can find that describes the diabetic condition, that describes gout. And there's a lot of it. Mm. I've gotten uh, connected into the sugar uh, addiction area with um, Bitten Janssen. And tomorrow I'm going to be offering uh, a hypothesis on, on sugar addiction, which is comprehensive. Um, yes. I, I call it the survival switch model of sugar addiction. Now this, the, the survival switch part of it, that comes from Richard Johnson, Dr. Richard Johnson's work, because he is the foremost expert in the world in, in fructose uric acid metabolism. When you, when you look at his work and there's over 700 publications in that area. Wow. Wow. That's huge. And decades of work. I mean, mm. this guy is like an animal, right? Mm. He's like a dog. who has got a bone. He's not going to let go of it. And, um, but when you take his work in context, and you ask a bigger question, which for me was last spring, because 
Bitten asked Tanner and I to come over to England and do the sugar intensive there with her, which we did. And then she asked us to give a talk at this one day conference that followed that. And, you know, I said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. At that time, though, I didn't know what I do now. I just had this gut feeling hmm. that you have this biochemical pathway, fructose uric acid, that is operating in humans that is operating with different rules than, than the standard metabolism. And I knew quite a bit about the evolution of humans just because of reading Johnson's work and then trying to make sense of all this. And I, I don't, I'm not trying not to get out on too much of a tangent here, but again, I'm trying to understand how does one become pre-diabetic? And I know I, you and I go way back and, and, and I think you know what I'm talking about when yeah. we listen to other influencers that are out there and people start talking about diabetes and it's like, okay, it's the insulin resistance, right? right. Yep. And I have been asking for five years now, okay, insulin resistance, how do we get there? You yeah. know, what what is mechanistically driving in the insulin resistance? Because- I think that we need to know. And the reason that we need to know is because we we need better strategies than even the ones that we have. Right. Uh, to help us, you know, sculpt a lifestyle that reverses those conditions and, and maybe more efficiently. Like it's not a one size fits all. Right. Okay. Thing, That's right. Yeah. All That's kinds of people, you know, not everybody reacts to uh, a standard ketogenic diet the same way. And, and there's good reason for that, because if you understand, if, if we begin to understand how this mechanism, how we get to the insulin resistance, then we can see that people tend to fall into different groups and the interventions are probably need to be tweaked. And that's what I do in my coaching now. I mean, you, I, you try to look at these people and you ask the questions, all right, what, what kind of food are you favoring right now that's driving your disease, right? And when you really like get underneath that and you start to look at it, you can see the influence of this fructose uric acid metabolism. And getting back to the sugar addiction, when Bitten asked me this question, I was like, this pathway has to be involved. But right. what's the connection to the brain? Mm -hmm. And that launched me, you know, back down another, uh, a lot of, a lot of people, some who are critical of me go, well, you just went down another rabbit hole. Well, the thing is, when I went down this rabbit hole, I found, I found a connection because right. I think for me, one of the frustrating things I have even about our, uh, about our own space, right, is we we all as a group in the low carb space we need to keep asking these questions we need to keep saying why why does this lifestyle work and it's not because i don't think it does or or that i don't believe it it's because we need to know more mm. and we we need to respect ourselves and respect the people that we're helping yeah. by not doing what the medical establishment does which is here take this do this and do that and you will get better. And when you ask why, the hands go up and they start waving. They don't really know, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the thing about sugar addiction is that you got these guys over there that are working in the addiction area on a molecular level. And like Johnson, they have decades of work. I mean, they literally have decades of, of work and they've characterized these proteins that are doing really profound things in the brains of individuals who are addicted to hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, amphetamines. Mm. And there is a ton of data that's come out because they've also looked at natural re rewards. They, they've also, in the same laboratories, tried feeding animals sucrose, for example. Um, they've, they've looked at exercise uh, and to get not, not get off on track, I'm not... I can answer that question, how they do that later, maybe if you're interested. And then yeah, they've also and they've also looked at stress and all of those things activate this, these same pinnacle proteins that drive the addictive state. 
And so now you have this profound connection. And one of the interesting things about uh, Johnson's work is that they published a paper not that long ago. And in that paper, buried in the results section, they showed that this pinnacle protein FOSB, delta FOSB, was actually activated in, uh, in the mice that they were working with that were being fed fructose. So that we, we know that fructose activates this key protein that we know in humans drives the addictive state. So there's your connection right there. It's profound and it's, it's understood that sucrose does the same thing. So does exercise and so does stress. So when, the, when people talk about emotional eating, and I know there's a lot of debate out there about it, right? And yeah. I'm pulling a lot of stuff at you right now. Um, and I know I know what a Bitten's opinion about it is too. And I'm looking forward to having some conversations with her because there are connections between the, the, the stress that can come from whatever the stress is that led to this, you know, what you want to call this emotional eating, right? The stress that was the trigger. Yeah. That contributes to causing the activation or the uh, the induction of this protein. And and I think there's more than enough data. This is what I'm going to, I'm going to actually roll in this class tomorrow and lay out all the data. Uh. Anyway, to summarize it to you, the data is there. It's pretty strong actually that this protein is is required for the motivational state that drives somebody to go back to that environment and seek the thing that's the activating pleasure. the protein. So and is, the that, is that protein naturally occurring or is it something that we eat or is it on a cellular level or where does that delta phosphate protein come from originally? Do we know? Do you know? It's produced in the brain. Ah, ah. Directly. Humans produce it in the brain. And uh, it's a really interesting protein. It's wow. highly stable. It, it has characteristics that make it unique from other proteins. Once you make it, it's stable for two to three months. And it the production of this protein is what we call, it's, it's a mechanism we call potentiated. So right. you, yep. you go... A binger sits down and they eat a ton of sugar. That protein gets activated and gets produced in the brain that drives the motivational state to keep eating and not put the fork down, right? And come back the next day. And then they come yeah. back the next day and they do it again. Well, more of that protein gets produced and it's in a ladder uh, sort of function. So you just keep making more and more of it and it's stable for months at a time. And this is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to help addicted people. Is that, is that, it, sorry, is that something we would call as the pleasure center? You know how it's all touted around the net that you have a pleasure center in your brain. Is that something that this protein could be called or right. part of? Or So you're talking about the dopaminergic food reward system, the dopamine system. Right. So when the dopamine gets elevated, that activates or induces the synthesis of this protein. Ah, right. Oh, so gosh. You light up, yeah, you light up the food reward system and boom, you start producing this protein. And there's other there are other factors that are being induced here, too. But that it's a really interesting problem because if we and, and Bitten talks about this all the time, you you can. When you talk to somebody who has a food addiction, I want to be really careful about that because I agree with her on this, that we shouldn't be talking anymore about food addiction. We need to break it up. Uh. We need to be talking specifically about the components because it's the components that are driving this, right? It's the fructose. It, there's a glucose effect. Um there's an alcohol effect. Alcohol is operating on the same metabolic pathway. So you have these things that are really in common. And I believe that people break, they, they break out into groups. So you can have somebody who's sugar addicted. And I'm using that as a general term. Yeah. Who, whose trigger items fall in the category of high glucose, 
hyper like hyperglycemia. Hyper, yep. And and another area that's called umami. Now umami is harder to describe. Uh, it it uh, it's a it's a deep savory taste like red meat. The the you know how red meat uh, uh, tastes inside your mouth, for example. Yeah. But the easiest way to understand it is in foods that are high in the amino acid glutamate. Glutamate, yes. Okay, so, that word keeps popping up for me lately. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's going to pop up because glutamate is, I think, evolutionarily really important in this process. But I, I recently worked with a client. I, I can't say more than that mm. in a conversation like this, who is hypergly who whose addiction is hyperglycemic, Bitten would say flour and bread and glutamate, umami, right? And then you have other sugar addicts that that fall more into the to the classic sugar, the fructose, but probably overlap in hyperglycemia, right? That's wow. What's going on there, I think, is is the genetics part of this, right? Uh, we all have different genetics, yeah. And how we respond to a food environment is going to be nuanced. So can I ask you then, getting back to the gout story that the pathway that you were on, what I, I have no experience with gout. So for our listeners, can you explain what gout feels like, what the symptoms are, how it's diagnosed, what you can do in, in a dietary sense or a nutritional sense to alleviate those symptoms? So gout technically, uh, by definition, is... Uh, an inflammatory, uh, arthritic inflammatory disease, which affects about in the U.S. It affects between eight to nine million people. Right. Um, the medical establishment will say that gout is caused by the crystallization of uric acid, and they kind of leave that idea out there leading people to think that you get these crystals that, of uric acid that form in the joint and they're yeah. all sharp and pointy and then they're jabbing. Yeah. That's what That's I've heard. Yeah. It, this is not how it works. It's actually the inflammatory event itself that causes the swelling and the severe pain. It's not because it's not a sliver in your finger uh, illness, right? It's not, not right. that you're not being poked by something sharp. It's the interaction of the crystal with your innate immune system that causes this uh, very painful event. And when you talk to a gout sufferer, you ask them to rate the pain between one and 10, most of them are gonna tell you 10. It's really severe. Most of the time it's gonna happen in an asymmetric joint. What that means in English is that it's gonna be in, one finger or the other finger, or it's going to be most commonly it's the, it's the major joint in the toe yeah. or one joint back. Yeah. And it will be the right foot usually, or the left foot. Right. But, wow. Gosh. But we're learning now that it, that gout is more complicated than that. There are instances where it's being misdiagnosed where it can occur in symmetrical joints like both hands or both feet or in both knees and it 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 looks like other crystals can coexist with with the uric acid and i'm going to get more correct here the crystal is actually monosodium urate Monos i was going to ask you what they were monosodium and, urate yeah and they can coexist with calcium pyrophosphate crystals Oh, so they, yeah, and and the so and this goes back, and I don't know what the, why there's this gap. It's frustrating to me as a gout sufferer, although I'm in remission, and I work really closely with with a lot of people through my YouTube channel who who are suffering now. Right, they actually have flares, and one one of the. Uh, some of the most important data that came out of the 60s and 70s and the 80s was that uh, we know that the actual crystallization of the monosodium urate is difficult. 
Um, mm. If you take monosodium urate and you dissolve it in water, it makes really stable solutions that don't crystallize easily at all. That that I'm talking super stable. They they'll be stable for months. Now, I know I'm getting into some chemistry here, but this is the thing about science is that you got to be willing to go where, wherever the, wherever the truth is. Yes, you and, do. With monoso- and with monosodium urate, it does not crystallize easily. And in fact, what those guys were, what they were able to show unequivocally is that in order to get it to crystallize, you need to provide calcium ion. Right. And when you put calcium ion in the solution, boom, you get nucleation. Now the Ah. monosodium uh, starts to fall out of solution. You get the crystallization. And and in the joint of a person who suffers from gout, that crystallization that I'm describing with calcium most likely involves some kind of a protein intervention. Mm. Now, we don't know what that is. That is an oh. open area of science right now, but we there's enough data that suggests that there has to be something other at hand here. But once you get those crystals formed, now you have the innate immune system, so yes. macrophages. Yeah. And they interact with those crystals, they phagocytize them, so they take them into the cell. And when they do that, so phase one is the production of the crystal, Phase two is the macrophage actually working on the crystal. Yes. And when the when the macrophage works on the crystal, it actually undergoes a metabolic shift. So so Linda, here you go. This is the part. This is the part that pulls all of this back to diabetes, obesity, and the whole nine yards because the met- the metabolism that this thing shifts to is fructose uric acid. Metabolism. Oh gosh! Oh, with, with a Warburg uh, effect, and I I don't know if you know about Warburg, but but the bottom line is is that this causes uh, a couple things to happen in the the macrophage. One, it it causes the environment around the macrophage to become acidified. So right. you actually start pumping hydrogen ions out into the extracellular environment, right. yep. and, which causes the release of more calcium, Yes, which causes Gosh. more crystallization. Oh, right? true. Yeah. And then you also have the overproduction of lactate in the macrophage, which compounds the effect that the fructose uric acid metabolism is having on the mitochondria. So you get the, the wow. mitochondria and the macrophage gets get down regulated. And, and in some cases, uh, the macrophage actually dies and breaks apart. And so uh-huh. now you've got all, all of these crystals of uh, monosodium urate, uh, cellular parts and everything like that. More innate immune system gets involved in this neutrophils infiltrate yep. and you get you get this massive swelling uh, and inflammatory event which people call gout and which is so very how is it how is it actually diagnosed so if you turn up to a doctor with a sore finger or a sore big toe or how is it actually diagnosed that's a good generally? question so ah. basically most of the time the doctor's going to look at it and go you got gout ah. because ah. what it's going to look like is it's going to be very very red like when this right. happened to me, I took my foot off and the gout just, or the doctor just crossed her arms. She goes, you have gout. Ah, uh-uh. so, so And I was obvious. like, I have what? <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me? Because <laughs> I thought I broke my foot. Oh, true. And, uh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. So they did, they, they finger stuck me. All right. And they measured uric acid, which was not horribly high it was at eight megs per deciliter which is the as the top of the normal range ah, we can thank talk God. more about yes. that and she took an x-ray to be sure i didn't break my foot and sent me home now here's the thing you want to know if you really want to know if someone has gout you really need to to take a needle and aspirate the joint, the joint. and then analyze for crystals under a microscope right 
that's the yeah. definitive diagnosis, but most people are not going to have that done. The doctor's um, going to look at it, see the red swelling, the, the yeah. level of pain. Uh, they are going to do some extra blood work to make sure that you don't have some like strange bacterial infection. Yes. All right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But assuming that's negative, the uric acid's at the top of the, the normal range or it's above it, they're going to send you home with a powerful anti-inflammatory. So one question I have is why does it seem to settle in one particular joint or one particular spot on your body, like one finger or one toe? Why isn't every finger and every toe? It's just one. So that's a really good question too. And uh, I think part of the answer is uh, easy, but with with a, quite a bit of biochemistry back there. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it is hard because I, I already sort of like built you up to this. We we know that some of these inflammatory events that are uh, they're being diagnosed as gout are more complicated, like because they're happening in in symmetrical joints, both knees or both. Uh, uh, yep, yep, yep. And this may have to do with the fact that. And like I said, out of the 60s, 70s and 80s, it's known that the crystallization is not straightforward. You need calcium. So I think the symmetrical stuff probably involves multiple crystals, not just monosodium urate. All right. So with that said, um, uh, I lost track of your, the first question. What, why is it all? Why is it not in every joint? Why is it just in one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, there's a specialized type of MRI that you can do now or a CT scan where the where the imaging has been altered so that you can see monosodium urate crystallization. So you should right. know that in gout sufferers, very commonly you can find crystallization all over their body. Ah, uh, right, Not okay. Their joints, but also embedded in tendons, other soft tissues, oh, even, on, wow. even on the heart valves. But systemic, it's throughout, yeah. Yeah, and even in the cardiovascular system. So now when I say that, the knee-jerk reaction is to go, okay, you're getting it, the crystallization everywhere. But actually, that's not true. So the crystallization that happens, and this, this again, this work came out of the 60s, and 70s, and mm. 80s, is happening on a local level. Anywhere where you have connected connective tissue, you can have these specialized conditions where there is a metabolic shift. Like I already introduced that concept with the macrophage, but it also goes on with the specialized biological cells that are responsible for maintaining connective tissue. Yep. So if you have somebody that's eating the standard American diet, where they are going hyperglycemic chronically several, you know, many times over down. the course of the day, they're eating yeah. added sugar with the fructose, evening meal with the alcohol compounding this. <clears throat> and then you have processed food bringing umami in. So under those conditions, we know that the, that the specialized biological cells that are in the connective tissues are under conditions of low-grade inflammation. If you have a, a situation in any of those locations that become relatively acute, like most often in, in the foot, uh, and I have found this when I interview people that become clients of mine, that they have a history of some kind of injury, like they sprain their ankle. Oh, okay. Foot. Right. So it's a um, bit of a memory. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. something to do with the wrist or they broke their finger. It's very common. And there's good associational data for this, although I don't like to talk about it because I don't like associational data. But, but there's a strong association with injury and a future gout attack. And I Gosh. think... The main reason for that, actually, there's strong actual clinical bio, biochemical evidence for this, that once you make that injury, that the cells that are responsible for fixing that injury undergo this metabolic shift that is consistent with fructose uric acid metabolism. 
and the acidification again of the extracellular environment there with which causes a cascade of calcium ion where you can get this initial crystallization mm -hmm. so my argument with no i don't have proof this is a hypothesis my argument for the unique crystallization throughout the body in different locations is that most likely you have specialized crystallization conditions that are happening there um, mm -mm. because i don't want to leave you or your viewers with the idea that uric acid is just arbitrarily crystallizing through the body all right because uh, no, there no, are no. doctors that think that way and there are even scientists that think that way and that's not consistent with the data or the chemistry. So if someone presents with a gout problem, how do they solve this? What's the uh, way to get that into remission? How do they get that pain gone? So we know that the major drivers are the same drivers that are, are, are pushing fructose uric acid metabolism, the hyperglycemia, um, the um, added sugar with the fructose, umami, which is processed food, or overeating a certain a certain types of meat. Like if somebody's sitting down and eating, uh, I had one guy who contacted me who's eating anchovies every afternoon with three or four beers. All right, so oh. you've got yeah, you got the heavy glutamate coming in there, and then the alcohol component, which is a can of worms. Because in the alcohol, you have the ethanol part of it, which, which is activating fructose uric acid metabolism. But then you can also have added sugar in that. And then in beer, you're also going to have, for most of those craft beers that people really like, there is a ton of carbohydrate in it. And then on top of that, you have a ton of purine. From right. The yeah. I remember so, the word purine from my degree, purine cycle. I remember that word. So yeah. what they need to do is stop the hyperglycemia, stop the alcohol, no added sugar. What does this sound like to you? It's low carb. Yeah, yeah it's low carb. You no, know? yeah, and, low carb. And what people who suffer from gout may not realize, most of the guys that I interact with the first time don't understand this, but 74% of gout sufferers also have kidney disease. Oh, 70, 71%. Um, 70%. Wow. So 74. Oh, uh, 71% are kidney disease. 74% yeah. high blood pressure. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Type 2 diabetes. And uh, uh, between 10 and 15% have suffered a, a previous stroke or heart attack. Gosh, and so, is it mostly men or is it spread across? It the... is mostly men until post-menopause. Ah, then we all become the and same then the anyway. Women catch up with the same susceptibility. Right. And it could be that I think that the reason uh, that it makes the most sense before the, the menopause is that their hormonal balance in ways that we don't understand yet are protecting them Protects from them. Yeah. these specialized conditions that we're talking about. Mm -mm. Great. So a, a low carb diet and really get yourself healthy is the way to yeah, stop that it's, progressing. It's the same thing that you and I go around preaching about low carb, real food, getting an exercise program, you know, not coming. We're saying that not the same way the doctor is saying it. No, 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 no. They need to be in some kind of healthy movement program, get the stress under control. Uh, sleep is a big issue because if you have sleep apnea, um, you're generating overnight these intermittent hypoxic events, yes. which are really hard on your heart and really hard on the cells that run the joints. And every major organ in the human body is large. So the liver, the kidneys, they all have hypoxic zones. And when somebody is going apnea through the course of the night, they're causing the magnitude, the oxygen deprivation in those zones to keep spiking. And that wreaks havoc. I feel like we, um, we've forgotten that we are actually part of nature. 
Right. We've forgotten that we are a chemical mix of things happening and we just expect to be well. We've forgotten that we're actually just part of the world and we yes. put ourselves above that and don't see that we can be sick. We don't understand these interactions in your mitochondria. We don't understand the cell wall because it's not part of every. You know, for you it's different because you live that life. You're the scientist. But for the general public, they don't have any understanding of that mitochondria and what it does. And it blows me away every time I look at it, the things that go on in there and why I guess people can't understand. We need to fuel those processes properly so that our bodies can function. It just blows me away. And you would it would blow you away even more because you're all right in there more than I am. So yeah, well, it's a source of frustration and it's an enigma for me because it's like, all right, how do we, how do we reach people? Mm. Because I don't know about you. I think we're probably pretty similar when we look at our extended family, you see this stuff all around us and you yeah. just want to go, dude, can you just please put the sugar down? Yes. I mean, yes. Oh my God. Just stop eating it. Eating the sugar. <laughs> try, yeah, it's... Just try doing it for two months. That's all yeah. I'm asking. You know, or even, you, you know, even four days, quiet. you can feel a difference. Can't you? Even in that short time frame, you can feel such a difference in your body. Yeah. I guess for me, it's been a long journey of learning this, but I, you know, I'm there, I'm getting there. So talking about sugar, I'm really intrigued in uh, what you're doing with Bitten Yonsen. What's happening there? What do you, can you share anything about that, the sugar addiction? It's a word that's being, you know, it's out in the arena now. Yes, I know. It's like the next thing now in our space. And yeah, uh, it's. I think it's really a big deal. The first time I talked about it at Nutrition Network was the very first nutrition summit they had. And I raised the issue because at that point I was actively coaching for the first time. And right. I was seen and I, I was in close connection with a Verta coach. Ah. And so we were, to, I was asking him about sustainability, you know, what's, what's the issue with this? Cause it looks like people aren't able to sustain it, right. The low carb lifestyle. Yeah. And then number two, this is what we hear from, you know, the medical establishment all the time. Well, you can't sustain, you can't sustain that lifestyle. So don't bother going on it. Oh, and, yeah. and I disagreed with that because I, you and I both have been doing this for a long time now. And it's like, it's not that hard to sustain this. So what is going on? Mm. Why, why do my clients have such a hard time with this? Mm. And it's clear to me, they weren't, in those days, I thought about it this way. I'm like, they're just not willing to give up the carbohydrates. Right. Yeah. But it's it's more specific than that. They're not willing to give up certain carbohydrates. And it's because of this phenomenon we're talking about. Um, every time they open their mouth and they go hyperglycemic, or they're having added sugar or a combination of that, and or the alcohol, all of this yeah. together in an evening meal, with umami, they're activating this pathway that drives them to eat more, right? And they they get a familiar, I'm going to use the word familiarity with it, because some people go addictive with it, right? They, they, they get an addiction to this certain component. And, and most people, you know, they have the pet thing that they can't let go of. Yeah, right? maybe it's the chocolate that they're used to eating every yeah. single night. Maybe like it was with me, that was the three beers that they, I, I don't care what it was. I had to have them every single evening. Plus for me, I had the chocolate, right? And I know that when I went into this lifestyle that I had to struggle some with the cravings I had, uh, right? Uh. And that was another thing I'm going, what is making the cravings? What is driving that? Yeah, what is the, good question. What is behind yeah. And and so this is the thing is recognizing that sugar addiction is actually real. Um, and there's plenty, there's plenty of clinical data um, and animal studies. If you look at Johnson's work, I mean, there, uh, there's 700 publications over Gosh. that, that many. That's and phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah. I'll give you a metaphor. This is true from the data. If you sit two people down at a table, and they understand going into the meal 
that they can get up and have seconds of their food, their, their particular food, as much as they want. The guy eating the ketogenic diet is going to push the plate back. He's going to push back from the table and he's going to be done probably with one plate of food. Maybe he goes back to the seconds, gets a little more protein, right? Yeah. Yeah. Depending on what you're having. The guy eating the standard American diet is going to keep eating for a significantly longer period of time. They, right. they eat more calories and they're doing that because uh, they, they are actively, well, if you just talk about the insulin, they've dis dysregulated the, the, you know, they're leptin resistant. They've dysregulated the ghrelin, you know, they're just going to keep, they're going to really? keep eating on that note. And fructose has been shown to, to drive compulsive eating, the overeating event. That's the added sugar that's coming in there. Plus you're activating this protein. There's this whole cascade. Um, so this is a very real thing. Um, ah. I think it leads to a, a, a condition of harmful behavior in contrast to, to actually being addicted. Ah. Right? Some, some people just will systematically go back and they'll over, overeat their pet foods. But when yeah. it boils down to it someday, they can let that go without yeah. too much trial or tribulation. That was probably me in the beer. I think Bitten would probably say, well, she would say one of two things. She would either say, yeah, you were probably a harmful user. Or she would say, you're, you were low-grade addicted. I, I'll take either one. Yeah. Um, because it was, you know, I, I had my own struggle with it. Um, and then you've got the people like the individual I, I'm still working with, and I've worked with others, that just cannot let go. I mean, mm. the intervention is, and the support that they need to do it. Wow. Is extreme. Yeah. And, uh, and according to Bitten, this is her number. I don't have, a, I like you, I've not been doing this for 28 years. She, she claims that, that it takes the hardcore addicted people 17 years before they're going to be able to, say goodbye wow. for real sure. oh goodness 17 years goodness me that is that's phenomenal to think that that's even even a thing that can happen 17 years it's a long time isn't it it's a long time and it's like peeling you know, the onion slowly 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 getting better or or less addicted or more controlled about what you're eating over that time frame yeah. It's a very big challenge for them. I, I think that when uh, when we step back ourselves as coaches, nowadays I know when I'm interviewing someone for the first time, in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, when's the shoe going to fall? Mm -mm. I don't say that there's not a problem with the carb carbohydrates. I want to know how severe it is. Yes. How, how tough it's going to be. And right? how does that how does that 17 year time frame relate to like addictions to drugs or alcohol or is it so the sugar addiction is stronger or the same? Or is I it think the addiction? sugar addiction is is worse. And perhaps one of the bigger the biggest extenuating um aspects of this are is the social environment that these people face. Oh, because, yes, that's tough. You know, if you and I are out and people ask us, I, this happens to me often, I don't know about you, but it's often they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I, I'm a health consultant. I I do, you know, one one thing I do is I try to educate. I, I study the science and then I try to educate people about what's going on with them. And then the other part of it I tell them is that I actively coach people uh, in low carb so that they can reverse yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I mention the word sugar addiction, they roll their eyes, you know? Yes. So if you imagine somebody who's sugar addicted, now we got to contend with the spouse. Who yes. May, oh. Who may feel like this is just bull. This is just bull crap. Why can't you just say no to the cupcake? They don't get mm -hmm. it. Right. Yeah. And then when you step outside that circle into the next social environment, 
Those guys don't believe it either. If you told them I'm addicted to cocaine, I'm going to go into a program, everyone yeah. would nod their head and go, would okay, all right, get it. Yep. This is yep. going to be hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. But, Gosh. But with the sugar, it's really difficult. And and these guys out there in this circle are just going to continually, oh, sure, you've been doing really well. Surely can't you just have a little? Yeah, a little yeah. Matter. But you just can't. I've heard that you just can't. You can't just no, have it's a little. Boom. It's back to the next on. day. You're getting texts by your client. They're in a restaurant binging. That's how. That's what happens mm. because they had a little the day before because somebody pushed it on them, and the next day you're right back to square one. So, what does a typical day for Pete look like? What I know that you mentioned just before we started recording that you're back into your your climbing. What does your What's your climbing all about? Tell us what you do and how high you climb. Well, I, I, I take this, this business that we're in very seriously. And I feel like I must lead by example. Yeah, exactly. And so for five years, I've been working on my own lifestyle. What's important to me? Yeah. Right. Yes. What, Good. What are my relationships? Like yeah, I like that. What what are my relationships and I better care, right? And I do. I have an incredible wife. I have an amazing daughter, and in I I do my best. Sometimes sometimes someone needs to slap me upside the head, but I'm doing my best to yeah. to be the best, you know, uh, mate that I can and father that I can in those relation in those relationships. Um, I've looked really hard at the things that I love to do that give me joy. And rock climbing is something I started when I was 12 years old. Oh. And I I was very, very serious about it for many decades. Um, I climbed at the cutting edge for a really long time. And, uh, and I've gotten back into it. Now, uh, hopefully for the right reasons, um, because of the joy and because yeah. I'm six, almost 65. Goodness, and good for you. I think, yeah, as we age, I think all of us out there, we need to be doing things that we love. And yes, you know, oh, yes, yeah. My clients don't like to climb. I'm not pushing it on them, but I, what I do say to them is, what do you love? What did you love to do yesterday or 10 mm -hmm. years ago? Then mm -hmm. bring it back. Mm -hmm. Why not get back into it? You know, um, get relationships going that are involved in that. Uh, it's really important to like build your build your little tribe around you. Yeah, yeah, and and then there's the eating, right? I'm I'm I stick to my low carb because I'm way healthier than I was, mm. and I also work out. Uh, I do high intensity training. I do strength training, and I I'm I'm in a cycle and in an intuitive cycle. I don't have a schedule. I'm not one of those. No, guys. no, no. Yeah. Yeah. But every day I get up and I'm like, all right, what do I feel like doing today? And in the back of my mind somewhere I have, I've kept track. So I try to do X amount of hit a week, yeah. X amount of the strength training. And I'm either in the, in a climbing gym or I'm going climbing outside. And I try for that twice. I try to have that twice a week. And honestly, I'm in better shape right now than I was when I was in my 30s. Fantastic, um, fantastic. Because I have, I'm, I don't, I'm not walking around with injuries, and I'm not doing things that were not healthy. And do you find, do you find muscle recovery like when you're pushing yourself with your strength training or your climbing that your muscle recovery is better on a low carb? Do you eat a higher protein, or how are you, how you're mixing that up? Okay, that's a good question. I I do push the protein. Yeah. So I do I needed, too. Started pushing yeah, it. Yeah. I'm 20 to 23% probably. Yeah. Um with it. And you know, um I'm still fat is part of of the diet. I mean, I make sure that I'm you know, and I'm yeah. keeping my carbs pretty low, but I I have been also experimenting bringing whole food real carbohydrates back into my life but always low like i'm never yeah. much of 50 grams of total carbs per day some days maybe um maybe i i push towards 80 you know if i have a, a slice or two of yam 
So yeah. I am careful about oh, that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, you asked also part of that question, though, I, I want to make sure to address. We, we do get a lot of pushback, right, from the establishment. No, you can't exercise on low carb. You can't do this on a ketogenic diet. You can't do that. Uh, no, this is not true. And I know that you're familiar with Noakes's work. Yeah. Um, they published a very, very important paper. So anyone listening to this should understand that I absolutely have no problem doing my hits. Um, I have no problem doing my strength work. You know, I'm easily deadlift one and a half times my weight. Wow. And my deadlift is headed up. Yeah, that's good. I'm back squatting. My back squat is, is, is heading upwards. You know, um, I'm climbing uh, really, really well. Hopefully this summer I'm going to be able to to do some things I haven't been able to climb since I was in my 30s as far as difficulty goes. Fantastic. That stuff's going really well. I mean, you know, and if you look at the science, we are more metabolically flexible than the guys who are claiming that they're more metabolically flexible. At the highest levels of HIT. When we should be 100% glycolytic and, and in the creatine phosphate pathway, we are still burning fat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a sure. lot of it. No. But we're burning it and we're burning way more than they are. Yeah, <laughs> That's sure. the same level of intensity. So, you know, right. um, I love the lifestyle. I love how I feel. Um, and... I think that that's a big part of our coaching. Um, yeah, you have I don't to know be. about you, but I there's a lot of my peers around me who are 65. Some of them are uh, somewhat older, and they're already talking about the things that they, you know, I no, Pete, I can't do that anymore. Yeah, they've got the old the old mentality. I call it. It's like, oh, I'm now 60. Well, you know, I can't do this anymore because I've got to that age. Yeah, I hear that a lot. Right. I hear that a yeah. lot. I just push the boundaries for me. I just want to see that I can still do that. <laughs> so tell me about your work with Tanner and how people can find you if they want some one-on-one -on -one coaching with Dr. Pete, who I would absolutely tell everybody to come to. Um, where can they find well, you? You're all over the place. You're everywhere. So our website is www.drpeteandt.com. That's how they get to the two of us. So yeah. drpnt.com. And uh, and they can work with either one of us, depending on, you know, male yeah. or female or what they yeah. want exactly. Yeah. That's our general website. So we handle all, you know, chronic disease reversal there. And then I handle the gout at www.drpetescoutintensive.com. Dr. Pete Scout intensive.com. Okay. Because I think there'll there'll be some people around that would be really keen to listen and understand about the gout problem. I've got a few friends around here that are, are struggling. So hopefully they'll listen and come on board and just make an inquiry. Yeah. So we have I'm offering the gout intensive again on April 22nd. Oh, nice. What does that mean? And that's was modeled after uh, Bitten Janssen's uh, sugar intensive. So it's a Saturday uh, for four hours devoted to what causes gout, how to get gout remission, how to structure meal plans, all, all of the business with that. And they can, that can be recorded so people all the way over here it, in this part recorded. of the world can watch. Yeah. And they get a Dropbox with everything from the oh. recordings to and the uh, content, to including right. meal plans and Oh, recipes. wow. You have yeah, been busy. And yeah. then I also offer one-on-one -on -one gout coaching. That's a three-month program. And I just got back from a 30-day live-in. Oh, I, I've been watching that on um, social media. That's been <laughs> phenomenal. We'll have to talk about that when we can. That's great. Yeah, I know you've got, you know, you're, you're um, keeping your confidentiality, but just your experience about how that was. That'd be fantastic one day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'll let you get on with your night because we've got the day and you're going into the evening. What have you got planned for the evening now? Um, Just 
dinner with my wife and then I'm not sure what we're doing after that. Uh, my daughter's coming here this week oh, for a baby shower. So yeah. um, maybe some of the, she looking some nice and round and healthy and I'm um, so pleased for you. So for the listeners, Dr. Pete's got a grandchild coming. Well, I'm yeah, so excited. I'm very excited. Yeah, you Very should excited. be. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that chat. And um, it's been a little while since we've caught up. So that's even better to speak to you like this as well. Um, yeah. Thanks um, for the honor of uh, having me on your show. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Dr. Pete. Just right. stop that recording. Hello, and welcome to the Whole Body Podcast where you can spend some time listening about wellness, movement, nutrition, and mindset as we listen and learn from experts, local identities, and people just like yourself, how to become stronger, happier, and experience a fulfilling life. Stay tuned for our next episode coming up shortly. And that's a wrap. Another episode for you to listen to. Please comment below if you've heard something new or have had some insight from today's show. I'd really love to hear from you. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify to listen to our fortnightly episodes. And remember to live your best life. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.